Hey everybody, welcome to episode 29 of Fight in Progress. Today, Susan is joined by Brock Bevel, who's in charge of the Chase the Vase Challenge. Look this guy up at chasethevase.com. You can email him at chasingthevase at gmail.com, or you can visit chasethevasechallenge.com and watch his video and check out his program. It's really amazing. Some awesome recovery stuff there for uh, law enforcement and otherwise. Uh, this guy has an awesome story. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. This episode was super great. So thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Going to be me solo again this week. Our, the men have jumped ship on me and making me fly by myself. But we are honored today to have a very special guest in studio with us. And um, we're going to let Brock tell us his story and what all he's involved in now and all that good stuff. But welcome to the podcast, and we're just honored to have you here. Man, thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. This is cool. This is a great setup, so I'm going to enjoy you. this. Good, good. Yeah. So tell us about you. Give us a little background. and You know, that's always a hard question because it always changes, you know. Like, sure. where do you, how far back do you want me to go? I mean, I'm from I'm from Arizona, from Scottsdale. But you got Southern ties. Now, wait a minute. I we got to point that out. You got to say Roll Tide for me. Roll Tide, right? <laughs> well, my, if my dad hears that, because he's from Mississippi, he's going to be he probably be a little bit. He's a steamboat. Okay. Right. He's he's sure. from Mississippi. Him and his uh, my my mom mm-hmm. are both from Batesville and Senatobia. Uh, they got married super young. Course. Decided to have a, a monstrous family. There's eight of us. Wow. Four boys, four girls. Uh, born into a very, very religious home. Mm-hmm. Very strict. Southern Baptist, am I? No, LDS. Oh, okay. Not a lot right? of that in Mississippi, I don't no, think. No, hardly any in, in Mississippi. And, and my dad was actually a convert, so he found the church later on in life. Right. Gotcha. And so my mom, she was raised in the church, but... But I'm talking. We were at church every Sunday. We had we had meetings on Wednesday night. So we were we were super busy in the church and raised in the church. And that kind of uh, for me was was great. But I also I also struggled early on with addiction. Sure. Right. Which what was crazy was I didn't uh, I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. You know because we were so strict. But when I was eight years old, I tell this story. My brother Daryl and I, he's two years older than me. Uh, we we what we. we in, in Scottsdale, you're, we lived in the house, we're on a street, and there's a big alley and those huge trash cans, and the dump truck comes. Well, our neighbor had stuck a big old box of pornography magazines, okay. and I'm saying there was probably a hundred of them, because the box was full, oh, right? Boy. And my brother, it's it's really interesting, my brother is the guy, if you say, don't touch that, he just listens. Me, I gotta jump on it, I gotta <laughs> touch it, I gotta have a scar to prove it, because I'm just... We're just different. We're sure. wired different, you know? Sure. And so I remember... Which is why you became a cop. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember reaching into the magazine. I'd really never seen porn or even like had a uh, a brain map like that. But I remember I looked into it. And of course, I, I opened up the, the a main page and there it was. And I'm like... And I remember the way my brain so quickly took off. Sure. Right? And my brother looks at me and goes, hey, that's not us. Put it away. And so he was, he was a great example. But when I walked back inside, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Like it was ingrained and I'm like, like I'm sticking together an old crap plan. Like, how am I going to go find this? How am I going to sneak back in there, but not let him know I'm doing it? So 
I waited. I waited a couple couple hours until it chilled out. I ran out there and I and I grabbed these two magazines. I remember I took the two from the top. We delivered paper route, you know, so we had these bags and I stuck them in these bags, wadded up and I hid it in the alley. And then I know my brain at eight years old, that's kind of crazy, right? But it's very well, susceptible. But it is, age. it is, you know, and, and, but he didn't have effect. He wasn't affected by it. And, and that kind of leads in. So I was super like deceitful and maniacal because I got into this and I was so, I was in, actually kind of shamed. Right, I'm like, man, I can't, I can't get this out of my brain. And then I'm supposed to progress in the church, and I, I never felt worthy. I never felt right to move up, and and I just had this constant battle with who I was. Sure. And so I uh, was. A, we were all into sports. Mm-hmm. I graduate. I go on a church mission. I live in South America for two years. Greatest time of my life. I got to learn Spanish, <laughs> you know. And I came home and. Played college football for a couple of years. My wife and I, we got married and then we moved back to the Valley. And I'm like, you know what? I want to be a cop. Like, I want to be a cop. And I don't tell a lot of people this, uh, but when I was a little kid, I was sneaking in my dad's room mm-hmm. in his closet. You know what I was going through? And I saw this bag, this, this clothing was covered in a bag. And when I opened it up, it was my dad's Mesa police uniform. Oh, he's And I'm so like, he- wait a minute. <clears throat> My dad's not a cop. He was a teacher. He was a, he was an educator and he was a football coach. I don't know my dad as a police officer, right? So I, I remember I put the uniform on and it's hanging all down and I see his badge. And it was at the time when they had their old trooper hats with the badge in the middle. I'm like, oh man, I'm looking at myself in the mirror. I, you know, I'm building this up like I'm some superhero, but it felt so cool, you know? And, uh, at that point in time, I'm like, I just want to be a cop. And I'm, I'm thinking I was like in third grade. Because wow. I remember in my books, I still have some of the homework. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a policeman. Mm-hmm. That was it. And so I tested with Mesa. I was I was totally blessed. There was like 500 people. And I don't know how the listeners, what, what the dynamics is. But it was right over here at the amphitheater. And there was 500 plus people going for seven spots. Yeah, they wish right. they had that problem today. Right, right. No, you're <clears throat> That ain't you're the right. issue today. And I remember walking in and I'm like, dude, I, there's no way in heck I'm getting this job because there was some good looking men and women. Now, what and year was this? This was 96. Yeah. And these guys come in, they're all, their pants are bloused. You know, <laughs> they got the shirt on, the tight, and they're all, mu- I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is who I'm competing against, you know? And I didn't know, but the, a lot of these guys were, were 10 timers. They had taken the test and they just struggled getting in and, or they have something in their background. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure. a novice to this police stuff. I just knew I wanted a chance. Sure. Took the test. They start calling you back and all of a sudden you get that phone call. Hey, we'd like to hire you January 27th of 1997. And you're thinking, wait, have you got the right guy? Did you call the yeah, right name? I'm like, wait a minute, there was 500 <laughs> dudes and you're picking me and I'm thinking, you know, in your mind. But I did excel on the physical fitness, the testing process, process mentally I wasn't great at, but but I was an athlete and I, sure. and I felt like I, I did a really good job in there and got on and, and, and had an, ex- I just loved it. You know, but but in the department, that memory from when I was a little kid at eight years old mm-hmm. kind of kept coming back. And as I worked in the addiction realm, see, I, I was on patrol and I hated patrol. <laughs> I hated going call to call. Right. Right. I hated the burglaries. I hated the robberies. I, <laughs> I didn't love traffic tickets and accidents, but I loved arresting 
dopers. Sure. You know, we call them dope. I, dude, it was like the funnest thing. I'm like, dude. And you play a game. You got you it. You play a game. Yeah. <laughs> it was cat and mouse. And you know what was interesting? I was really good at it. Uh-huh. I really was. I bet. And I, uh, because I was maniacal uh-huh. and I could talk to people and I could get in their car, I could get in their pants, I could get in their, po- I mean, it wasn't, it was that, it's just the way you communicate. And so I, I started doing really good and built some connections with our detectives in the SCAT team, which is the, yep. in Mesa, it's the special crimes apprehension team. And I had one really good buddy in there and I would, I would work cases and I'm like, Hey Tom, I want you to re- review this case and see if you can run with it. And he was like, we developed a really good report and he started running with these cases and they started making these big arrests, mm-hmm. right? From, from, you know, street level crimes, but they're getting it from somewhere. Sure. But they had the free time and as an officer, call to call, you don't have that free time. Right. But I, I remember I, I, was, I dug it. I love it. But fast forward a couple of years in my career, it was, uh, it was over the 20, it was December 27, two days after Christmas. And we were doing the DUI task force was in play. Most people understand that yep. they try to try to make a traffic stop on US 60 and the guy's going eastbound and he's all over the place. They, they clues of impairment of DUI were, were just automatic. He gets on the phone with dispatch. Hey, back your officers up. I'm going to I'm going to shoot the helicopter up. You oh, know, geez. this is my fifth DUI. I can't go back to prison. I can't go back to jail. I know this is my last one. So he's in his brain. He's going. But the whole time as they're relaying this information, I'm like thinking, what is it about alcohol and drugs that makes people react this way? Because no, when they're normal, when they're not on it, they're, they're amazing people. Sure. Right? But I was fueled. Like, I wanted to know. I wanted to know what it was. Nosy little thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I was arresting a bunch of them. But anyways, long story. He he goes out all the way out to East Mesa Apache Junction, turns back around. I get into the pursuit. Uh, we, I had, they were, in, in the time, they were bringing officers with AR-15s. Right. So, you know, you have officers that are designated AR-15 shooters and and the gas guys and the canine. So everybody had a specialty unit. I just happened to be an AR shooter. And and he pulls into a cul-de-sac right by Mountain View High School, thinks it's a through street and goes crap and turns around. And we're able to come in and do a felony traffic stop amongst a cul-de-sac five homes. Wow. Right. Yeah. So our backdrop's a home. So we're like, oh, gosh. So. The man's name was Wade Jordan. He gets out of his car and he's got a knife in his hand and he's wielding it. And, and you hear about police brutality. You hear about all these things. But on this day, on this occasion, we did everything 100% right. Like we got, he got out of the car. We were going, we did verbal commands, soft hands, hard hands. We sent the canine on him. The canine latched onto him twice. He didn't fight, so the canine let go. We pepper sprayed him. We tased him. We we shot him with a beanbag. Like we went through everything, wow. and the dude was not affected by it. And now you know in your mind you're like, "Jeez, what the hell is going on?" Yeah. Like I've been pepper sprayed. Yeah, that I didn't handle fun. it very well. It's not fun. You know? Yeah. And uh, he got into his car and drove at us, and I had I shot him through the windshield of his truck, and uh, and killed him. Mm-hmm. Right there was a couple other of us that did, but I remember as we pulled him out of the truck and he's laying there. He, uh, he, he had face wounds. That's where that's where I put the shot. And sure. and I remember laying there going, "Bro, it's two days after Christmas. Two days after Christmas. What? Well, like, what in your life is so bad that you need to be this intoxicated sure. to get behind a vehicle and put us 
in jeopardy because had I not shot, he was running into my car, there were officers behind, it would have been a, a I, I call it a shit show, it would have been, it'd been horrible, sure. right? And so that was my job. But fast forward two months, I'm at a deposition with his mom, his dad, and, and the sister who was actually a dispatcher in Phoenix. And we're sitting wow. at this table. And after the depo, the, the, the mom's like, hey, can I ask you a question about the shooting? And my attorney's like, you don't have to answer this. The depot's over. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking in my brain, hey, listen, I'm a dad. I have children. Right. So maybe she deserves this answer. But she looks at me and she goes, Officer Bevel, if you had a chance to do it again, would you still kill my son? That's a hard, that's, that's real, right? That's a hard question. Sure. And I'm thinking, you know, and I don't just blurt it out, but I'm like, you know what? I, haps- I absolutely would have to because... Mm-hmm. That was the situation he put it us in. Right. And I'm thinking, where's the ownership on his part? Right. You know, that's where I became frustrated. And then a couple months later, this is where my, my I would say my life kind of falls apart. And it was a kind of a similar situation where we're working the streets. We have a confidential informant. She tells us, hey, you're, there's going to be a drug deal coming at this intersection right here. And... <laughs> There's going to be a truck driven by a mom and a 12-year-old girl in the seat. And she's going to prostitute. She's going to give this girl to this dealer in exchange for drugs. Oh, right? And we were going to... The, the, the prostitute had a warrant. And that's why she's feeding us. Hey, I would rather give you this. This is a bigger deal. Take them instead of me type, type situation. Sure. Bigger fish. And they never pan out. Like the, the street information is really hard. Everybody's out there. It's like, oh, dude, I totally agree. It never, or you have to change locations a hundred times, yes. the phone calls. But on this occasion, it absolutely on time. She showed up, she drove in. The drug dealer comes down the street on his bike. He goes to the passenger side. A conversation's going and he reaches for the door and we're like, do we got to do something? Mm-hmm. So we come up on our, on our bicycles, right? We detain the, the, the drug dealer, my partner's talking to her. I'm talking to the girl. And she presents it as she's the victim. That she doesn't know this guy. This guy just came up and he's trying to take my daughter for right. drugs. Like, what am I? I'm a right. mom. And so I'm like, oh, man. So we, we switch spots. And, and when I look in the floorboard, I see a baggie of dope. Which was weird because I had worked a lot of dope, but I'd never seen anything in a vial like that. It was almost like an oil-based clear... Mm. And it ended up when we field tested, it was it was a, a synthetic methamphetamine, mm. which was for us was pretty new in Mesa. I mm-hmm. mean, we know what methamphetamines look like. So my partner's at the driver's side. I'm in the back at the tire. So we're we're kind of staggered for you know contact cover. He's contact. I'm covering him. Sure. And I hear her escalating the situation. I'm not giving you my my ID. F you. She throws her truck into reverse. That was my mistake. I made contact first. And why I didn't have her turn her truck off, mm. I don't know. I Like, I can't. It's been such a long time. I don't know why I did it. But so I got to own that. That's kind of my fault. And right? I'm still upset about that. I got to let you know. <laughs> like but to redo that one. <laughs> I want to redo that. Because that was like textbook law enforcement. Sure. Turn the dang car off. Sure. And she throws it in reverse. She kind of reverses like this. And my right foot gets caught under the tire. Ouch. And I go to pull my foot out and it snaps my ankle bone, <gasps> right? And then I go and try to brace myself with my left foot to catch myself. And she hits me around the inside of the knee, kind of like 
Stretch Armstrong. Remember that little guy where yes. you could stretch it? And that's what my knee looked at. It was like slow motion, hits, comes back up, and now I'm angry. I'm like pissed, <laughs> right? Because I'm like, is that happening? But your adrenaline, you just got hit by a car. Sure. So your adrenaline. We got run over first. Yeah, yeah. Then you got hit by a car. And Matt, uh, my partner, he was at the front, and his left foot gets caught under the tire. He falls, she runs over him, right? Oh, and I'm like, all I could think about was, you got to stop her. You mm-hmm. got to arrest her. She's panicking. The girl's in the car. She reverses back and gets stuck, wedged in a median between the tires, and she can't get out. Like, I'm like, come on, God, thank you. Like, <laughs> yes, the, he's helping us out on this one. We were able to come up, and it, it was wild how fine-tuned your motor skills get, how, like, focused you can get. I was just in a shooting a couple months earlier, and I was honestly ready to take the shot. I was waiting for her to grab the column and pull it down, and the daughter looks up at me. She, like, gets in my line of sight, and she's looking at me. I'm like, I can't. I can't shoot. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Because my partner was right in front of the car coming at her, and he's drawing down, and I'm just waiting. She's going to throw and drive and run him over and then get out. She didn't. We were able to arrest her, and... After I calm down and your adrenaline wears off, I'm just like, what is it about these drugs that makes people want to prostitute their daughter? Right. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a father and I'm like, what would, what would it cost me to ever get to that moment? The desperation. The desperation. Sure. Yeah, so, so of course, because of my injuries, I have to go see a doctor <laughs> and loved my doctor, such a good man, but he made a comment to me that was life-changing and, and I hope every, all your listeners are like, okay, what's he going to say? But he told me, because you're a police officer, you'll never get hooked on this stuff. And he was giving, prescribing me opiates, right? But that was his line of thinking. I don't know if it was his line of thinking or what, or if he was that just... the personality type, because you know how bad it can be, yeah, because that I'm you police... wouldn't allow yourself to get addicted. Yes. But yeah. I took that as... Yeah, that's the way the brain works. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I so wish. I'm like, hey, so I can't get addicted to this stuff. So it doesn't matter how much I take, I'm cool, right? Yeah, bad And statement. so I go home and, and I had been injured a couple years earlier. I jumped the fence, landed in a hole, blew my knee out. And I remember the first time I took opiates that I can remember, I loved it. I was like, ooh, wow, this is... Good my stuff. pain's gone. I'm pretty chill. Right, I Got can love handle and the day. Yeah, I'm, I'm. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm good to be around, and uh, I'm a nice person. <laughs> and I'm like, I gotta get off this stuff because I gotta get back to work. So it never, like, it didn't trigger me like that. Now, what happened was, they try to get me back to work. As soon as I get back to work, I get in a fight at the Systems of the Down Rob Zombie concert. Working in the best concert ever, by the way. Seriously, man, it was at the Mesa Amphitheater. And it was it was interesting. A truck, a car had left early. They had taken off, and my partner and I, in plain clothes, undercover, mm-hmm. we're walking across the street, and this guy tries to run us over. Of course, I had just been you run over. You in cars? What? What is this? I know. This? I, I had just been run over, and like that PTSD. I'm like, oh, and it freaked me out. It like put me in this box. But they come around, and they stopped at the front, and there's a fountain, and it was running water, right? And so I'm like, hey, Tony, let's let's go confront them. And a woman and a man get out, and they just start jumping in the fountain. I'm like, what the hell is going on? They're taking, he's taking his shirt off. They're in the fountain. I'm like, are they, are they swimming in this fountain? And uh, so we come up, we badge them, and we're like, hey, come talk to us. You just tried to run us over. And they're like, F you. And the fights, I'm fighting 
the guy, the driver. Oh, and I'm, I mean, I'm fisticuffs. The girl jumps on me. She's trying to stick her fingernails in my ear hole. Like she's trying to like make me, I don't know what the hell she was doing, but she was high <laughs> and she was trying to hurt me. Right. And so the fight's going on. And I remember thinking, where's Tony? Right. I came up with another guy and I'm, I'm both of them were fighting with me. Where's he at? And I, and I was able to push the guy off and I looked to the side and Tony is in a fight for his life with the back seat. We didn't know there was someone in the back seat. Oh, oh. He had come out and he had gone down to his leg and was pulling out. Remember those Rambo knives yes. that had the compass on top? Yep. He pulls one of those out of his pants, out of, out of his leg. And I'm, I'm able to get off my guy and I'm able to hit him. But I blow my whole hand out. Like literally just blow it out. And so the department's like, okay, <laughs> listen, dude. Right? And I remember this appointment. They, they call me and they get all my medical records and they want to medically retire me. And, and this, how many years do you have on now? This was like, oh, seven, seven oh, and a half okay. years. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Right? Not enough years, right? I'm going through all these situations and, and, and they're like, and all the people on the board I knew, mm-hmm. they're my friends. Sure. They're people I worked with. And they said, we're looking at your chart. Your doctor <laughs> doesn't feel like you're capable of returning to work. So we're going to medically retire you because you're a liability. And I'm thinking in my mind, liability, what the heck do you mean? They're like, if you jump a fence and get in a foot pursuit, can you, what happens if you like turn wrong and your knee blows out? Right. What if you get in a fight and fall down a flight of stairs? Oh, you're a liability. I mean, you're strong mentally and all that, but your body just can't handle it. And I remember I was, I was seriously, I was seriously pissed off. Like, really? You guys are my people, you know, but I understood at that point in time, I was like, I am a liability to these guys. So they said, you're, reti- you're still going to get paid. You'll get your medical retirement, but you, but you can't be here any longer. Right. And then I go home. And they're like, you need to come tomorrow and turn all your gear in. Oh, and so for me, that was, that was an experience of a lifetime. Because if you think about it, and I'm sure since you, you understand what I'm saying, but when we identify ourselves, you know, we talk about this I am. Mm-hmm. We talk about that's probably one of the most powerful statements in the world. Yep. Um, with us as police officers, we identify as I am a cop. I'm an undercover cop, right? Which adds credibility to who you're like. You're you're really cool. You're cooler than that guy. You know, right. that's just how you play <laughs> in your mind. Yeah, level cool. Absolutely. You're a pol- I'm a police officer. Well, but I never identified as. I'm, I'm a dad, I'm a father, I'm a, a son of God, I'm a Christian. Uh, yes. I didn't identify myself as that because this had kind of taken over. Yes. And so when they took that from me, I didn't understand the effects mm-hmm. that was going to play in my life. And you're going through it, you can understand, right? Well, like and, you don't and, have that anymore. And think of it like this, because I deal with a lot of people that... Um, have retired just regular put their time in and I laugh because you you know how it is how much longer you got well I got you know six months eight days 32 hours and whatever yep. you know. and and then retirement comes after their 30 plus years or however many years and really about a week before panic sets in and then they have to turn all this in and now they're sitting at home because they forgot when they retired Everybody else didn't retire with them. Mm-hmm. And they actually wind up at headquarters more after retirement than before retirement. Although we're seeing that trend changing now because people want out at 20. But you weren't even in a mindset of being close to retirement. No. So so yours was even more of a 
impact and shock on your system because these other people had all these years and were literally counting it down. It's And that's exactly right because now my team's at work. Yesterday, I was just rolling with these guys, right? And you're young. And I'm young. And now I'm changing diapers. And I'm helping my wife with laundry and the dishes. And I always say there's no offense to that, but that right. wasn't who I was. Like no. My job was to go to work, right. arrest bad guys. Yes. And it had become so bad that like, I'm a pager guy, mm-hmm. right? I, 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 that tells you how old I am right <laughs> now. So I'm carrying a pager. And it was like Pavlov's law of condition response. Yes. I was waiting to start salivating. Yes. Because as soon as that pager went off, I was like jacked up. I'm like, here we go. I'm, I go from a night, right? And I'm like, I want to be fed. Yep. The chaos. I didn't care what the call was. It's the adrenaline. I just wanted to be there. And yeah. the adrenaline. Yes. And I'm going to be back with my team. And I lost focus on my family. Like family was completely secondary of who I was at the time. Sure. And so, of course, that caused major friction. So I'm sad. I'm lonely, I'm tired. No purpose. No purpose, no passion. Mm-hmm. Didn't even know who I was. And so I noticed that if I took more opiates. I felt better. I felt better. I had more energy. I was a better dad. You know, I could, I could get up out of bed and, and be okay with it. And let me say this to you too, because this is one of the things that I teach. There are three personalities that we see in people, and I've already got you pegged, my friend. Um, that are consistent with people who stay in law enforcement. You have attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Check. (laughs) You got it. You're an adrenaline junkie. Check. You're a caregiver. Check. That's why you go into this line of work, to help people. So now all three of your personalities have literally hit a brick wall. And now where? Where do I go? How's the caregiver going to get met? How's the ADD? The whole concept of if I'm bored over here, I get to go over here. (laughs) And you love change because you're in control of it, especially in the undercover world and in narcotics and the things you were in. You could control if we did this at 4 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock at night or whenever we did it. And the adrenaline junkie just got completely shut down. So, of course, you're looking for something else now which is pretty easy, and that's why we see a lot of addiction, and whether it's porn, sex, alcohol, gambling, opiates, whatever it is. So I guess I was the unfortunate one Mm -hmm. where I got two of those. So I started self-medicating myself. Sure. But I'm missing the chaos. Yes. So what do I do? I start reaching outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. It's the adrenaline. I'm 100% ownership of this. It was me. But at the time, I was just reaching for something to fill a void. I, I, I like to say, I felt like I had this big swimming pool that was empty. Mm-hmm. And I had a cup, a small cup, and I was just filling it with water. And I was just constantly trying to fill this pool up. And it was never going to fill, right? Because I just, that depth of loneliness and, and that I had created from the loss was just epic. But how else are you going to get adrenaline? Because think about cheating in a marriage. There's a lot of adrenaline that goes into the sneaking around part of it also. Yeah, and then the pictures you're sending, and then the messages you're sending, and then you're trying to hide them, and then you're getting caught. Yes. 
And in your brain, you think you're doing a good job masking it and hiding it. And she's like, dude, you're lying. Right. No, it's, and then you, and then because I was really good at working undercover and being there maniacal and, and I bring it into my marriage and I'm like, she has no clue. Sure. And she's straight up calling me with it. She's got the, the, the proof. I'm like, no, no, I don't. And I'm like, dude, I am just wrapped up in this vicious cycle of, of lies, of, of sadness and sorrow. And I was like, oh my gosh, like. I have become what I despised. Yes. And now I can understand what that guy that was driving down the road was feeling. Sure. What the lady was feeling, that just absolute desperation for your mind mm-hmm. to slow down. Yes. Yeah. And so I got to, so so that lasted for 10 years. Wow. Yeah, that lasted for 10, 10 years. The the cheating and the opiates or so ten years, my opioids stopped. Okay. I was able to. I was able to. Uh, that's a story itself. Detox myself, where I made a major mistake and ha- and was stuck doing it. And then, but I, but the pornography, the sex, the the pictures, and, and all of that, it just continued to to spiral. Sure. That to me, and I and I know dealing with addictions and alcohol and drugs and all of those things that those are difficult addictions to deal with but i've worked with a lot of law enforcement officers with sex and porn addictions and the thing that's so debilitating and difficult with that is and again it's it's they're going out of the marriage because that's how that works you can't be addicted to sex with your wife only you gotta have that outside adrenaline rush and everything and the hard part is is that when you break that addiction then there's a fear of having sex with your spouse for fear of, am I going to reactivate the addiction? It's kind of like a food addiction. They tend to go from one extreme to the other. They get the food under control, and then they're afraid to eat, so then we have a whole other mm-hmm. extreme. And I see the same thing happen with sex and porn addictions. And it, it's, it's much harder than I ever dreamed it would be to work with individuals on this. Never thought I'd have to deal with that. Yeah, because there's a chemical dump associated with it, Absolutely. right? The dopamine's the dump. Absolutely. And so what people really don't understand is is the a very similar high that I was getting from the opioid, I was getting from that adrenaline dump of... of like, I, I joke about it with some friends now. I'm like, dude, I sent so many, and I hope this doesn't offend the populace, but dick pics. I'm like, who, who am I? Like, you are an idiot, you were such an idiot. Like you, in your brain at the time, thought that this was normal behavior. And you're dating like three people and you're carrying this story. Mm-hmm. And you're like, man, I need some freaking help. Yes. And how did you get that help? Well, with the opiate addiction, like I said, I, I honestly made a mistake in my, in my, in my addiction. I, I usually had the pills right by my bed. I was always... I always placed them there with a glass of water. So when I woke up, pop, and I was I was good to go, right? And this morning I didn't have it, so I went in the cabinet. I opened up my cabinet. I'm looking in there, and all my pills are perfectly placed. They're numbered. I know what's on them. I mean, <laughs> and I, I remember taking one, drinking down the water, and I shut the shut the the mirror, the glass, and uh, I it shined into my bedroom. And I'm sitting there and there was like this massive epiphany like, you live in a crack house. (laughs) Look at what you're living in, dude. Like you've done search warrants on homes that look better. 
My wow. clothes were everywhere. My bed was a disarray. There were polar pop. I mean, I'm like, dude, this is a problem. So I opened the cabinet back up, and I and I automatically associated with the pills. I I opened every every canister, every pill bottle, dumped them, and flushed them. Wow. And How did then that feel? at first it was liberating, and then I'm like, oh shit. Now what? Are you ki- if I could and I said if I could have scuba dived, I would have been in that toilet like retrieving the, these opioids, man. Because I was like, now what? Should have kept one. Yeah, because I, because I didn't keep anything, and I was just so angry with where I had be where I'm ending up. Like how I'm a strong guy, I'm mentally tough, and I'm looking back saying, dude. You got a problem. So, How much do you think that doctor's statement to you really and truly came into play? At, at first, it absolutely did. Okay. Because I'm like, well, even if I add a couple, it's I'm not going to become addicted to it. Right. And, I, and my behavior, I wasn't, I didn't lose my house. I didn't lose my relationship yet. I actually had a better relationship with my kids. Uh, you know what I mean? So sure. it's like, I'm not seeing what other people are seeing. I'm not out there with... I'm not out there chasing dope. I'm not out there doing that. So you you didn't have to do the doctor shopping and then ultimately going to seek it illegally. And I had okay. so many pills because I had I had a hand True. injury. True. I had a knee injury twice. Yeah. Oh no. And I had multiple surgeries. So I was I was doctor shopping with my own doctor. I'm like, hey doc, um, the hand today, the knee tomorrow. Yeah. Like, hey, you know what? That stuff you gave me last time kind of made me sick. And this is where I feel really bad because I would lie to my, my wife mm-hmm. and say, hey, that stuff really makes me sick. She had no idea I was addicted. Sure. No idea. She just thought I was sad and I was going through it because I just lost my profession. Sure. Right? So she wasn't calling me. on Even to this day, she's like, you didn't have an addiction <laughs> because she never saw it. Right. Because I, w- I worked undercover and I knew how to mask it. Sure. I, I know what the signs and symptoms, as long as when we're up, I'm I'm on. I'm you functioning. Don't know what I, yeah, I'm functioning. Sure. And so that's that's a key for those wives out there. Yes. You pay attention to that stuff. Count their dang pills. Find out what you're doing. And then I had a buddy. This is where I kind of really feel bad. I got to make some amends somewhere down the road. My One of my best buddies was, um, I was getting extra pills and I would give them to him. And he would go down and sell them and bring me cash. Yeah, and I'm like, dude, you're a freaking dope dealer. You're on drugs, and now you're a dope dealer. I'm the pro- I'm the I'm, provider. I'm the provider, and I know and I know he was taking it. And he was killing some masks and some pain too. But I'm like, he's bringing me cash weekly. I mean, wow. they can't prove it now, so my statute of limitations right. is up. Yes, they can't come exactly. back and arrest me. But this is all hypothetical. Uh, this is all hypothetical. Yeah. yeah, but I'm like, dude, and then I'm battling with that. I'm like, this isn't who I am. Right. So. It was interesting. I, I take up a, a cause in my house. And I'm like, okay, you're going to detox right here, right now. And I didn't know about AA at the time. I didn't know. Like, I always thought AA was a bunch of crooks. That were, I, was, I mean, how many people did we arrest coming out of an AA hall? Right. You know? Right. I'm like, I'm not going to AA. No way am I going to go talk to my church leaders. No way am I ever going to do that because now they're going to know exactly what I'm doing. Yes. So I'm like, man, let's just let's just go through this. And I... I remember I was in there and it was so like, I just hope people hear this. Like, this is not the way to detox. No, this is like, dangerous. You need to go get medical help. This is dangerous. Help them wean you off. But I took it. I'm like, I'm, I'm telling myself, I'm mentally tough. I'm going to go through it. At day three, 
I'm laying on my bed and I feel like my bones, my bones on my body are breaking. Like I'm throwing up, dry heaving so bad that my chest feels like it's coming out of my mouth. I had, I had crapped on myself. I had urinated myself. I had thrown up so much and it's just, I mean, it was a mess. And I'm turning the shower on hot. Every time I could get any hot water, I was turning it on because I was either freezing or burning up. And where's your wife and all this? No, we're divorced. Like we're yeah, we're now divorced. You're on your own. Yeah, I'm completely on my own. And that was one of the hard parts. Is I'm like, nobody's coming to save me. Nobody's kicking my door in. Like I'm not gonna get saved from this because you have either been so good at hiding it and lying about it that they don't know you have an addiction, or right, or you, you you pissed off everybody else who you thought were friends because of the drugs. And so I'm in it, man. I'm like, okay. And then I have a, I have that moment where I'm like, okay, God, you ready? I promise you that if you let me walk out and in the back of my mind, I'm hearing yourself, just go get one opiate. If you take one pill, it it'll will just get turn over it, the hump. It'll get you over the hump. Thank you. Right. And, and every single person out there that has an addiction under, I mean, whether it's pornography, gambling, we all make these, what I call deathbed confessionals. Okay, God, just, just get me through this. Cause I just want it to end. One last time. Yeah. One last time. And I hear him laugh at me. I honestly, <laughs> now I could be hallucinating. People could say what they want, but I heard him laugh at me and said, Hey, you haven't even started. Wow. Because if I let you up, you're going to go right back to it. I'm, I mean, I'm hearing this as like we are talking right now. Sure. And so I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking, okay, God's in this with me then. Mm-hmm. I'm, maybe I'm not alone, mm-hmm. right? Maybe I got something else. But he made me go through it. On the seventh day, seventh morning, I'm laying in my shower and I'm just broken, right? I'm the most broken I've ever been in my life. And I just remember saying, okay. I'm coming back to you, God. And now I'm going to ask you this, and this is in sincerity. You need to do me a favor. You need to let this end. So take my life and let me just die right here. Right. Because I didn't know how much more I had to give. Like, honestly, you, you, I mean, you can only put so much water and, and poop it out. And, and, and you, my teeth felt like they were breaking. Like, I just felt like I was literally falling apart. Wow. Right? And... One of the, the symptoms was I felt like my skin was on fire. Like I was being, like there was a match and they were just burning my skin. It was weird. I don't know why, but that was a big sensation. But I, but I heard him say, and I, t- and I tell God, I said, okay, God, take my life or let me be somebody. Let me get up and, and, and have a message. Let me go share something with people. Because if I've gone through it, man, p- other people can, can understand and they can, they can grasp onto the story. Sure. They're going to have to go through their own, own journey, but they can, they can look and say, hey, this guy did it. So, and it, was, it reminded me of the WWF wrestling matches with Hulk Hogan. Remember oh, back in the oh, day yeah. when the ref would come up and grab his arm and then it would just fall. Yes. Then he'd grab it again and it would just fall. The third time he'd be like, you remember that? And like oh, everybody in the crowd just went nuts. That's what it felt like. I had this energy boost about me. Like it, like who I was just came back into me. Mm-hmm. And I just stood up and I walked out of that shower. Wow. And I walked out and there was a lot of things that went into that. But sure. But when I walked out there, I committed never, never to use it again because mm-hmm. I want to be a different guy. Mm-hmm. And I and I and and eleven years, 
I still haven't touched opiates. I'm still going to have to get some surgeries coming up for my knee in the future. Yeah. And I'm just going to have to be straight up with the doctor and say, hey, Motrin and, and Advil, whatever you got to do, but I can't I can't ever go back there because I made a commitment. Sure. And that's what keeps me sober today is number one, the thought of ever having to detox again. And I don't care if it's medically assisted uh, or no, not. I, hear you. I just don't want that process. I felt like my life was going to end. Sure. You know? Sure. And then I wanna I wanna I wanna share my story with people. I wanna be I wanna be sober minded enough to be able to to talk to people and say, Hey, listen, man, I know what you're going through. And and that's why what I do is a little different, is I started a business called Chase the Vase. Mm-hmm. And what that is is you can't take all law enforcement out of home, right? You have right. a military, you have these guys that are working, firefighters. If I say, Hey, I want you to come to a treatment center for 30 days. Mm-hmm. That's a huge issue in their lives. Listen, I can't come for 30 days. Maybe FMLA hasn't kicked in. I can't come. I just, my wife's going to be paying the bills. Sure. I can't do that. So what I've created, I created a sober platform for men and women to come in. Mm -hmm. And it's a 30-day challenge. So every day I build on this challenge. So day one, for example, I mean, I don't give all my stuff away. But day one is like, hey, pick a date. Mm-hmm. pick a date that you want to get sober. I've never heard anybody else say that. And they're like, why would I pick a date? Because it t- gives you three or four days to go home sure. and clean everything up. Sure. Clean your house out of booze. Throw your pornographic magazines away. Get yourself ready mentally to where when you start this, you are ready to start this. Good for you. Right? And so I give them a chance. So we meet every morning like a briefing. Mm-hmm. We, we, we brief together. We talk. And then I give you a challenge. And then you work 24 hours on that challenge. So do you, people can't come in middle of the group? No, not usually. Okay, okay, good. And that's good yeah. because it kind of throws it things throws off. off. Yeah, yes. so we, we have Facebook groups and so okay. these like 15 guys work together. Okay. And then when the next one starts, they there's a new group that works together on a different platform. Gotcha. So then we, we work the challenge. You come back the next morning, we debrief the challenge, and then you get another one. So it's like building blocks on what you're trying to accomplish. And do the challenges change based on what their addiction is? No. Okay. Not re- I mean, I add variations to their challenge for a certain individual mm-hmm. if I know what they're going through. But you know as well as I do, addiction's secondary. Right. Right. There's something else going on You're in your life. You're self-medicating. Absolutely. So we got to get down to whether it's childhood trauma. Yes. Whether it's PTS. Whatever it is, we got to figure out what it is. I'm glad to hear you hesitate at the D. Yeah, I don't like we using don't, the D. Well, we I don't believe in it. We believe it's an injury yeah. like your your leg injuries you. and stuff. Yeah. that You can heal from it if you get the proper treatment. It's not a death sentence. It's not. Yeah. And this, this concept in the mental health world, and there's some great people out there in it, but we're making victims of people. We totally are. I don't allow victims in my office. You're either going to work and get the stuff done, or you're going to go pay somebody. So there, <laughs> that's the, that's the key. Is what people don't understand is they think they can heal through osmosis. Right. Like I can sit in your office and just by right. looking at you, I'm going to heal. Right. It is. The hey, I'm good. Hard, Wait a minute yeah, now. Don't oh, don't be down. I know me you're here. good. No, just, I know you're good, but I'm not a mind reader, <laughs> right? And, and that's what people understand is they're like, dude, sobriety sobriety's hard. Sure it is. And you know what? Yeah. All kinds of sobriety. So, is so, so is addiction. Yes. And, and I, in my opinion, I think sobriety is harder than addiction. Because in addiction, you can forget everything. Sure. As long as I take enough substance, I ain't thinking I'm numb. Well, it takes you out of the, the place that you're in for the short term. Yeah. 
And so what I want to do is I, I'm, I make these guys attack this sobriety. Like, Tell me, the, explain the name. I'm confused wow, that's on the a, name. That's an awesome story. So it comes from a story called The Go-Getter, okay. which most people have heard. It's a story about William Peck. Mm-hmm. He was a World War I veteran. And so it, it, you can find it. There's actually a book written on it. It's really old. It's like 1890 or something. There's been a remake of it. But essentially, it's a, it's, an, it's a gentleman that was injured at war. He comes back and he wants to work. Or wants to work for a company. His boss loves him, but the people around him don't like him because he's shining, right? And he gets, he, his boss wants to move him to Shanghai. Oh, he wants to give him some opportunity for growth because he's the guy that can trust him. And so they put him on this test and the test is called the chase, chase of the blue vase or the test of the blue vase. And his goal, his, his boss gave him specific directions where to go, how to buy the vase, how much it's going to cost, where to deliver the vase. And these two guys that worked with them were constantly trying to screw him up. Like they were changing the names on the store, making the vase in, uh, so expensive that he couldn't pay for it. And every hurdle that was thrown in his way, he just said, Let's, I'm just going to overcome it. Because his uh, sergeant in the military told him that anything that he was given, that his response was to be, it will be done and I will do it, no matter the cost. Wow. And so that's for us in sobriety, we're chasing a vase. Yes. Like for me, it was to have just an, uh, a wonderful new marriage, mm-hmm. right? To where I was in it. And that was a vase that I needed to keep. And now that I got it, I got, I got to make sure that I, that I keep that vase safe. So there are lots of vases. Yeah. My sobriety was a vase. Like we're all, you are chasing your goal is to help people. That's the vase you're chasing. Absolutely. You know, so everybody, and that's what we're doing is just like, you got it. Now what? Are you, are you done? You got the vase. Great job. Now go chase something else. Yes. Now go give it back. Go help other people. And so yes. if you go to my, my website's chasethevase.com, you can actually read. There's a whole story on it and you can read nice. it. They will take you through some, some questions like at what point in time would you have quit? Right. Would you keep going? Right. Like when they changed the name of the art store from B Combs with the C to a K, now that you've made all these phone calls, are you going to quit because it's hard? Right. Right. I mean, in surprise, the same thing. Guess what? There's mornings you wake up, you don't want to go to bed. I mean, you don't want to go to the gym. You don't want to eat right. You don't want to read your scriptures. You don't want to do. A, but are you going to buckle every time it's hard? Right. And, and kind of that's the that's the the premise behind it. You got to go to work. Absolutely. And people are scared to do that. Well, they are, and, and there are so many obstacles today, and I, I think in our society, I can honestly and truthfully say I'm almost 62 years old, and the hurdles and the concepts and the stupidity out here, it's enough to make me never want to get out of bed, Ooh. to be honest with you, <laughs> you know, and so then you add all these other things into it as far as first responders and the lifestyles and, and the things we're not teaching people and the... You know, one of our big trainings includes families and spouses because, you know, as the former wife of a federal agent, nobody taught me how to be the wife of a federal agent. I didn't know what was expected of me. And he was an alcoholic the first nine years of our marriage and really proud of him that he overcame it the way he did. And he had a great place down in South Florida that was a huge uh, reason he was able to do that. But then my argument always was, when do I get my 30 days? Mm. I never got my 30 days. And nobody taught me how to do this stuff. I had to learn it on my own, which is why Under the Shield started. Because it's a lifestyle. You can't separate Mm. these things out. 
That's you know, what you were taught in an academy, keep personal and professional separate. One of the oldest, most archaic things mm. being taught from 100 years ago, still being taught today, and I walk in academies and go, y'all are full of crap, cut that out, stop teaching these people that, because it'll never work. And then we wonder why divorce rates are where they are. Yeah. And so even all of that, the, the learning, the figuring it out, each step of that is chasing a vase. Every step. And it's and there's not a lot of people out there teaching you how to do that or what it looks like or what you can do, what you can't do. And then a lot of mistakes are made. Yeah. And in this industry, it can cost you a career. Or your life. Yes. Yes. Or your marriage. Yeah. Or your children. Yeah. And that's that's a big thing. And I, and I hope that I know you're working on that as well. But like, <clears throat> it's been years mm-hmm. for me. But I'm still working on those relationships with my children. Sure. Trying to put those back together because they're like, you were terrible. How old are they now? They're oh, they're older. So I have two grandbabies from my oldest. And oh, wow. So my oldest, I believe, is 25. And my youngest is a senior in high school. Okay. And this is it. This is it for her. And she's out of the house, you know. So, But I'm, I'm desperately trying to fix those relationships and just time and consistency, mm-hmm. right? If I could teach one thing is how do you rebuild that trust? How do you build, rebuild relationships? It's time and being absolutely consistent yes. with everything you do. Because we, after recovery, like you said, hey, when's my 30 days? Mm-hmm. But we come out of recovery and we're different. Yes. We feel different. We feel like we're like a, we're renewed. Yes. And we expect to come home and there's going to be like rainbows and unicorns and everything. Bad inside. chance. That, that's not happening. That's not what it looks like. Well, the damage is still there with yeah. the other people that, that lived it. They, they, nothing's really changed in their world. And then there's the, are you really different? Mm. Or how long is this going to last? Yes. And you're waiting every time you mm. leave the house, you're afraid to come back. Has, has it changed? You know, that's, that's hard. The walk. Yeah. So, and then, and then the amends. Yes. You know, where do I go with him? And we just talked about this this week. Like, where do I go with my mans? Do I do I have to tell you I'm sorry? Because what if sorry doesn't? What if you said that so many times and that's a trigger to your wife? Absolutely. Like, stop saying you're sorry. Right. You know, because it because really, are you sorry? And it, and if you're not, don't say it. But but how about those those living amends? Like someone said, do I feel forgiven? Like, do I feel forgiven for what I've done? I do feel forgiven because I've I've walked it. I, yes. I have a personal relationship with my higher power. Yes. But I haven't forgotten those behaviors. Well, we can't. Yeah, and so that's what people there's there is a definite distinction. Yes. And and I think sometimes that's a big problem with a lot of people with the 12 step program is how many times do they have to go back and, and redo those those steps? <laughs> and you get to, to 10 and, you, uh-oh, I got to go back now to 2. <laughs> and I got to go do those amends again? What I mean, come yes. on. You've already told me this. Yes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page. Guys. Yes. And, you know, to me, you're telling your story and getting out there with people. That's the difference. You know, one of the things that Under the Shield that we're really proud of is that all of our stress coaches – have to have done it, been married to it, raised by it, or given birth to it. Don't care mm. about education. Love that. You have to have lived the lifestyle. And we believe in, um, and it's scripturally sound, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I'm sure you're familiar with yes, that, ma'am. that someone changed it. You know, the top used to be self-actualization. 
I don't know who, but somebody obviously smarter than me, added a new one to it. It's called Transcendence. And it's where when you hit self-actualization and you're in a good place, you reach down and pull somebody else up. Mm. And in the first responder and military world, it really needs to be another first responder or military person that's been there and done it. Culturally competent. But, and, and, and so much of it is because it is these are special people that do special jobs. And we're a little mentally off. Well, y'all are we're, crazy. We're Let's different. just say, Let's, you're flat out crazy. You're not mentally ill. Yeah, no, no, no. You're just crazy. Just cra- yeah. And and thank heavens for you, but it's like the guys, when I say that to them, and they go, and what does that make you, Susan? You deal with us 24-7. Every day. <laughs> seven days. For 29 years. <laughs> I go, I'm just crazy. That's why I have the red man stick. <laughs> I just beat you. Um, but it's, a lot of people don't understand that you have to have had the real life experience to talk to a first responder about this because, and, and, you know, I have some cop friends and clients that have been alcoholics and they go, that's bull crap. You can go to any AA meeting. Well, most of them I find too are retired, but you've got a cop who's working, who has gone through an addiction. I'm sorry, but it's not in his best interest, his family's best interest his career's best interest for him to walk into an AA meeting and say, I'm a Mesa police officer Mm. and I'm, you know, an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever you are. And then somebody in there says, huh, I got a DUI from you. Or my cousin got a DUI from you. And now all of these things come out in court. We have to have some specialty groups for you. There's no anonymity. None. I'm going to say people think, you know, that's the first thing they say, but there's no... There's none. Right. Well, and if there is anonymity and you're having to hold that in, I'm not sure how much benefit a group can be for you when you're constantly having to guard everything you say so that the group doesn't know. If you don't mind, let me add on that because this is really important for me. I'm going to tell you what. It was really, I hope they're listening out there for this because this is important. For me, this was the hardest thing. Telling my story the first time. Sure to other people was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Because I felt, I'm like, I'm the only guy that's going through this, right? Right. I'm it. And so to tell this, it was like I was jumping off a bridge and I was landing on concrete is what it really felt like. I'm like, man, it's going to fall on deaf ears. But were were they first responders, the first group you told, or were they? No, no, they were just regular people. but, But I remember the feeling of like, man... Nobody's going to talk to me. And I remember after everybody came up and just were like, that's so thank." Even in my first podcast, you know, sharing that story and people were like, man, I, I understand what you're saying. I've been there. I walked it. Then I then that craziness. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not the only dude in that boat. Right. You know, there's like a couple more of us. So so I, I honestly believe that sharing that story mm-hmm. on a podcast Two other officers, just like we're doing here. Sure. For me, it's more healing for me than most people. Well, and that's usually why people get into work like this. Yeah. And one of the stories I'm sure I've shared on the podcast numerous times is there's a retired Phoenix officer that has taught with me around the country. Combat Marine marks this amazing man. And uh, he was in a, he was shot, Sergeant was shot, and he shot and killed the guy. And, of course, mental health focused all alone. Well, his problem has to be he shot and killed somebody. He's a combat Marine. Sorry, not his problem. Not his problem. And so a year and a half later, somebody brought him to me, 
And first time he'd ever met me, and he walks in, and I said, you want me to tell you what your problem is? And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, right. And I said, your problem is that you've been trained to be a problem solver, and a woman died before you got to the call, and that you feel responsible, and the tears started. And he said, Susan, you're the first person to ever say that to me. And I said, well, let me tell you what you're going to do, Mark. And he said, what? And I said, you're going to travel around the country, and you're going to tell your peers how broken you are. And he loves to tell that story as he's standing before his peers telling his story. And he says, "Uh, I told her she was crazy. And he said, but I guess she won that fight. And every time he tells the story, I I laugh at him because I tell him, he tells something a little new every time. And he doesn't even realize he's doing it. But in telling his story, he's healing. And we call that post-traumatic stress growth. He's growing through his injury by sharing his experience with people. And everywhere we've taught, somebody calls, somebody comes up on the break, somebody sends a text and says, man, I thought I was the only one who felt this way after a shooting or whatever. And that's healing for him because then he says, my standing up there and telling something that's difficult is helping other people. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, that that shooting may have just triggered those. Uh, that might be what people, th- you know, that, that trigger point mm-hmm. that they want to get that help, but it's usually something that's in the arrear, something that, that they've worked in the past. Well, we call it the psychological garbage can. Mm. And that's how we explain post-traumatic stress is the psychological garbage can because it's a lifestyle. You only have one. And when you compare it to your garbage at home, the garbage at home, if you don't empty, it smells. Well, this is where families can learn is that psychological garbage can, your attitude sucks, you're irritable, you're cynical, you snap at your families. They're saying things like you're not as much fun as you used to be. You got this sixth sense of humor going on, which is actually a very healthy tool. We call that post-traumatic stress. Garbage can's getting full. And then when you finally empty your garbage at home, the bag breaks, you're flinging the crap all over the house. Psychological garbage can, we start to see blood pressure goes up, heartburn turns to acid reflux. We see cancer, diabetes, and asthma where there's no family history. We see addictions. And we call that post-traumatic stress injury. And you can stay there till you retire, you die, whatever. Or you can get help and start helping others as you get better through post-traumatic stress growth. Hmm. And that's how we explain it. And Mark said the first time he heard me teach that, it triggered in him his garbage can was really full from a bad divorce that his parents had when he was a child. And he laughs and he says, I was angry. And he said, and there's no better place for you than the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. The Marine loves you if you're angry. And so coming through all of that, and he had to get divorced once to realize just exactly what was wrong in his life. And he turned everything around and, um, and then he gets in this shooting. And so, he, you know, he said, telling his story is very hard, but he reaps so much from it because of the help and the things that people say to him of how he's helped. Love that. And, you know, that that's the thing about law enforcement. You know, firefighters typically will at least hear stories of thank you for saving our family album as the house burned to the ground. But how often do police officers have people say, you saved my life? Or whatever, usually you're creating more havoc than you're never fixing. Yeah. 
<laughs> and and so I think then when you can use your bad experiences and the tough times and the hard times and the fallout from this career and this lifestyle, which I say, I tell guys all the time, you're not on that hook alone with your alcoholism or whatever's going on. Your departments are on the hook. Your training units are on the hook. Trainers are on the hook because apparently we haven't provided what's needed for you to be able to learn to empty that garbage can and live somewhat of an okay life and not have the fallout from it. So it's not just it's not just the individual. Everybody that's listening, if you're struggling with any addictions, any issues, whatever, relationships, you know, we have trained you to be problem solvers, but we forgot to teach you how to solve your own problems. And you bring on everybody else's, all the responsibility. I should have been there sooner. I should have prevented this from happening to that child or whatever. This is more than one human being can handle. And you got to reach out for help, which is why programs like yours are amazing. How to Tell us how they find out about you and, and this 30-day challenge that you do and start every 30 days. Yeah, they can go to chasethevasechallenge.com. They can email me at chasingthevase.com. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm out there and type in my name on Facebook, Brock Bevel or Chase the Vase, and it's there. And it's anybody in the country, anybody that can get on Zoom can be a part of this. Anybody. And is it just law enforcement or it's first responders? or It's everybody. We even have wives that have come on there. So it's anybody that wants to work with it. But I do, if you're law enforcement, first responder related, I put you in a group. And, then, the, and then I do have it for outside people that just carry addictions and I and I have them in their own group. So I try not to mix them too often. You know, and I'd love to talk to you about even starting things, a group similar to that for the spouses of the the addict in the law enforcement world, especially because again, having been there and done that of where's my 30 days, there needs to be some type of a support system there also. I love that. And I think that's that's something that's very needed. I think that's what I'm going to title it. Where's my 30 days? There you I go. I like that. There you that's go. That's ingenious. And, yeah. and it's and it's the way I have felt for many, 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 many years. Yeah, that's, that's and, good. Um, so, Brock, can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, I think this is going to be a, um, something we can collaborate on and put our two groups working together. And, you know, I think we're both just about helping. That's what this is about. And, uh, you know, nobody's a cure-all uh, by themselves it takes a takes groups working together to fix all the different issues and provide resources and so again if you're listening out there we're going to post all of this we'll post all of brock's information um on there and again at under the shield please know you can call us anytime on our toll-free number 855-889-2348 we never ask your name or who you work for there's no documentation we operate 100% on anonymity. Families, you can call in also. This is not just for the first responders. Families are part of this lifestyle. And uh, so, again, thank you. Um, next week, we may have one of the co-hosts back. I don't know if these worthless men are ever going to show up again, but you know how it is. Uh, sometimes they have to test me and see if I can do this by myself. Uh, but anyway, Susan here, thanking you all for the sacrifices that you make and just want you to know we're here to help you. So, Tune in next week. Can't even tell you what we're doing, but we'll have something good for you. And uh, appreciate you listening in. Love you guys.